BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the show. In my endless pursuit of trolling Binghamton alumni to be guests on this show, I stumbled upon Dr. Adam Harris. He is a clinical assistant professor at the Department of Medicine at NYU Grossman, but is also the senior director of strategy at Oscar Health. Disclosure, this show is not sponsored by Oscar Health, nor does he represent the interests of Oscar Health throughout our conversational shenanigans, but... It was great to see him in person at the studio. Of course, we channeled the Southern Tier and Binghamton being the belly button of New York and how much we love the school and what our experience was like there. But we really got into the weeds uh, about what it's like to be a modern day MD with all the crazy healthcare fuckery afoot in this country and debating whether healthcare is broken, it's working by design, what people can do to fix it, and how the rising tide of advocates supporting millions of Americans every single day in the most complicated system on earth is moving the needle for real and helping real people every day. Dr. Adam Harris, and here we go. All right, just say your name for volume. Adam Harris. All right, pull it up a little bit. This? Vertically. I'd like this. A little lower. Mm-hmm. Still good? <laughs> Say ah. Uh. <laughs> All right. I think this is fine. Um, All right. You, you can project too, right? Yeah, I talk quite loudly. Yeah. So what's your stage voice? Ooh. Uh, all right. I could really project if you want me to really project. Like acting. Remember that? <laughs> <laughs> I ain't never done that. I've taught. Been a TA. So, well, I saw I was reading this. Yeah. Are you still a, I'm going to just read this, a clinical assistant professor, Department of Medicine at NYU Grossman School of Medicine? I am. I LinkedIn is that. accurate. That's right. It is. I mean, I could have gone to NYU's website and verified this, but I chose not to. Yeah, I probably am on their website. I don't think I've ever looked at my own page. I wonder what the hell's there. Like, what photo are they using? <laughs> yes. Almost certainly the photo of when I was in residency. Or like your 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 driver's license from 1994. Seven. Wow. I should really check what they have <laughs> up there in hindsight. I'm not quite sure. I'm thrilled to have you here. I, I, my, my listeners know I'm I'm like a spokesperson for Binghamton University, mm-hmm. or as we would call it, SUNY Binghamton, which they hate, and I love that they hate it because I keep saying it, and then like stop saying it. And anytime I find an alumni who is, you know, whether they transect, that's not a word, whether they Venn diagram. That's a word. We made up a word, transect. <laughs> there you go. With my world or not, it's just always fascinating mm. to see where we wind up because of the brain, which for those not knowing, the campus of Binghamton is in the physical shape of an actual human brain. Yes. Little did you realize. I definitely, I mean, 
I, the brain is the brain. It, yeah. It's just, you know, it was cliche at the time. And in hindsight, it feels even more cliche, but I love it. I mean, it's, it's, it's what it is. So my default question to anyone on the show or anyone I meet in general is, were you aware of Wegmans before you went to school? No, of course not. Right. Uh, yeah. I was born and raised in Brooklyn, so yeah. So there was clearly, no way I was aware. <laughs> we had this this supermarket gestalt moment. Yeah, right? orientation. They took us to Wegmans. No one does this. Yeah, both Wegmans and Walmart were a legitimate culture shock for me. Were you there when they opened up the movie theater? No, I think that was already open by the time I got there. Yeah, because I think it opened in like '93. Oh yeah, no, I got there in. 2004. Okay, so it was probably you were well done. Yeah. Yeah, so you're welcome that I was part of the <laughs> the post IBM uncollapse yeah. of Vestal City. That's so funny. That was like the, you know, the history. Everyone would talk about how it was like an IBM town. It was. Yeah. Yeah, and honestly the school was the reason mm. that everything got revitalized. It was fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, you could tell. I mean, it was parts of the town at the time I was there were Pretty decrepit. I wonder how it looks today. I assume I assume the school has grown, but I don't know. Well, I was up there last year, mm. and you can't recognize the school. It's a good thing to have. New mm. buildings, only endowments, everything's great. The only thing that's still there, which is like, it looks like, was it the, the administration building? looks like, I don't know, like the Munsters, the house. It's just really this ugly thing that's still there. I, I can't, you know, you have a better memory than me from 93 <laughs> than I do in, in 2004. I don't remember how the administrative building where it looks. I'm just proud of the school. Yeah. It's a, still a great school. Yeah. They call it, uh, what, what do people call it? Like uh, the Harvard of the Sunnis or something like that? Or like the Ivy of the, Ivy of of the, the Belly Button of New York. Sorry, like that. It has some. Wait, why'd you go there? I went there sort of out of default, frankly, because okay. my, I'm a, from a family of four kids and all three of my siblings went there. And so I had essentially zero aspirations as a high school student. I basically just wanted to get by. I didn't try very hard. Uh, Wait, and now people's lives are in your hands? Yeah. <laughs> that okay. changed pretty dramatically. Let's get to that. <laughs> no, go on. <laughs> yeah. No, when I was a kid, I was uh, I was actually, I was a pretty bad kid. I had a lot of behavior problems. When I was uh, in junior high, I got suspended pretty frequently. High school, I kind of calmed down. But I was still pretty much a degenerate. I tried to avoid doing work as much as I could. But I still got good grades, which is why I was capable of doing that. Not so you everything. didn't work, but you got good grades. Relatively, yeah. In the, in the sort of sciences and English subjects, yeah, yeah, yeah. like you know math and like history and chemistry and biology, I was like, yeah, no problem. Spanish, like straight 65s. I was, I was <laughs> yeah, these, these sorts of things where I actually had to learn something new. I was like, no way. So I had this very sort of bimodal experience where I, I I didn't think I was very capable at school but not be, but mostly because I just never tried. Wait, so was your first major like theater 101? <laughs> like the throwaway uh, I mean, in high school, I didn't have a major. I went to like one of these Jewish schools. So oh, okay. half our day was spent learning Hebrew, also straight 65s. <laughs> for yeah, me. Yeah. So like I felt like I was a mediocre student because I was getting like just passing on half my stuff and then like, you know, 90 plus on half my stuff and to me I was like, well, you know, I could do it and then then, yeah, I, I just made my way into Binghamton mostly because I did okay on the uh, on the SATs. And then in college, I just sort of got to take classes that I was interested in. So you had, like, med school was not even a blip on your radar? No, not really. I, I Like, my way of choosing medicine was very roundabout. I didn't choose it. Like, I didn't come into college knowing I wanted to be a doctor. No, not at all. I came into college not knowing what the hell I wanted to do. I loved 
philosophy of all things. I majored in philosophy at the oh, end. Oh, really? Yeah. But simultaneously, I didn't want to be a philosopher because their lives seem terrible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're always like psychoanalyzing the planet and the universe, yeah. and like like Camus, like, please, yeah. why? And like now, because philosophy is so esoteric, it's like other fields of, of like ac- academia where it gets so esoteric that you can't even talk to people. Like, it's not like the philosophy that I liked in high school where like, let's talk about freedom of the will or something. It's like, do you believe in material in strict materialism or soft materialism? Everyone's like, I have no idea what that means. Right. And so it's like, you can't even have a conversation no. about the things you do all day. And academia seemed very unattractive to me. And so like medicine to some extent was a way for me to be like, well, this is like applied philosophy. Like I get to go in the real world, deal with life and death and help people and do something that's productive and that's like the closest I'll get to applied philosophy, essentially, which is kind of how I chose it, which is really not typical. <laughs> no, think. that is not typical. Like no one gets the med school bug in undergraduate. Yeah. 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 And, and basically that was it. I was just like, you know, I want to engage with, with life and death and what it means to deal with these things. And the best way I could see of doing that short of going to war <laughs> was, well, yeah. uh, was going into medicine. And that's, that's what I chose to do. And I, so you went back downstate. I saw you went to mm. Stony Brook. I did. Yeah. So you were done with the Southern tier for life. Uh, yeah, basically. The weather just got to you, huh? Yeah, the weather, the vibes. I mean, honestly, even Stony Brook. I'm just a city rat. Like I, I, I can't. <laughs> like even Stony. Anytime I need to get into a car to obtain basics like milk and eggs, it's like not my style. Right. I. I even like at Stony Brook, it was still very suburban. You know, I got to hit 60 miles an hour just to go pick up groceries. That's not, I like mm-hmm. just getting out, going for a walk. Be, I, I'm just born and raised in the city. I don't know. It's, it's funny because you talk to people and they're like, ah, New York is so overwhelming. I'm like, oh my God, outside of New York is so like, bo- I don't, it's not boring. It's not my style. I well, I talk about this all the time. I mean, we do a lot of talks. I'm sure mm. we probably cross paths in terms of, I was just in Idaho. Mm. Man, Starbucks is slow <laughs> in Idaho. I could imagine. Like, why is it taking this long just to give me a coffee? Yeah. And then I'm like, oh, I'm in Idaho. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it just, so you do a lot of talks now. What do you talk about? I do a lot of talks. Didn't you say you talk a lot? Or you just oh, talk I, a lot? I talk a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I don't give a lot. I mean, I, you know, I talk. I've never spoken public. This is my first time speaking publicly in which I'm recorded. Wow. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay. This is well, de- is, is a, I can make a that. very inappropriate way to break the something, but I'm not going to say that. <laughs> That's fair. Thank you for that. I, uh, I mean, I talk. I'm very extroverted. Um, uh, I can't tell. Yeah. Right. I, <laughs> and I, I do a lot of teaching. I've done a lot of teaching my whole life. Ever since I was basically starting college, I started doing. TAing, uh, teacher's assistant for in philosophy, in biology, and organic chemistry, if I recall correctly. And then I, when I took the MCATs, I then taught for the MCATs in medical school. I taught, you know, again. Well, you like, went hard and fast. Like once you said I'm doing this, it's like the straight shot. Pretty much. I mean, I took a year off in the middle and did research at Mount Sinai in their uh, interventional cardiology department. But that yeah, basically, I just I went straight through until I had a quarter life crisis. Uh, in the middle of my residency, in which where I decided not to do clinical full time for the rest of my life. So you want to talk about that? Sure. I mean, I yeah. was I, I only heard like midlife crisis, but I guess if you're if you live to sixty, quarter life is I don't know like 
That's an odd math right I don't know, I'm there. Betting on a hundred, so that is twenty-five. I, yeah. like, I try I, I to be should, optimistic. I just, I'm going to be fifty next year, and I would love to have a midlife crisis there right you. now. <laughs> exactly. Instead of at thirty-five, just will it into existence? <laughs> yes, exactly. So, so what happened? Uh, so I was really gung ho cardiology. So I, I did cardiology research prior to starting medical school at Mount Sinai. I really loved the folks I worked with. I love the clinical sort of. Um, way of thinking for cardiology. It's like plumbing, you know, it's very concrete. And I really enjoyed that. And then uh, there's kind of two pieces. There, there's one piece that's strictly clinical in nature, which made me decide like I didn't want to be sub sub specialized. And then there's another piece that was more system in nature, which is why I ended up going the way I did. So uh, the first, I guess, from the clinical perspective, I came to learn that so I was very interested in something called cardiac electrophysiology, which wait, is wait. lots of syllables. Yeah. Slow down there, Tex. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's the that's the type of heart doctor that focuses on the electricity that goes across the heart, right? Mm -hmm. When people have arrhythmias and things like that. Super cool stuff, very tech heavy, very like cognitive in nature. And then uh, you know, I went and shadowed them for a while. And it felt, you know, no disrespect. I love that people do this stuff. They should do it. Just very, very in a way, it's not so repetitive, but like everyone has a bread and butter like surgery that they do. Mm -hmm. And it's like, how many times can you burn like atrial fibrillation, which is like a four to six hour procedure? Is that where they snake the thing up your femoral artery? And Yeah, those, those guys go up the vein. The, okay. the guys who put in the stents go up the artery. Right. Um, but my, yeah. dad, my dad had that a few times. Yeah. Yeah. The stents. The stents yeah. are super common. Yeah. This sort of stuff, the ablations where they burn... Uh, so that's like when they go into an artery and they open it up. Mm. This is where they go up and they burn different pieces of the heart. They could do a lot of different procedures, but this particular one I'm talking about to prevent, because your heart, basically electricity can come from any cell in your heart. It's not mm -hmm. like the regular cells of your body. Right. It could discharge electricity from anywhere. And oftentimes that'll lead to an arrhythmia. One of those arrhythmias is called atrial fibrillation. So the procedure, it's very, very common. I forget the numbers, but a significant proportion of Americans over 65 have atrial fibrillation. And under certain contexts, they get it ablated. Mm -hmm. They literally go up there and say, screw this thing, and they burn it out. It's amazing. It's like a four- to six-hour procedure. And I'm like, wow, I can't do this all the time. And mm -hmm. so then I was like, okay, maybe I'll just be a cardiologist. And then I did a bunch of shadowing, and uh, I'll never forget. There was one uh, cardiologist who uh, I respect greatly, super smart guy. I love the way he thought about the body. And, we, and a patient got mistriaged to his clinic. And patients said, well, I have diarrhea and it's abdominal pain. And he was like, um, okay, any chest pain, palpitations? And the guy's like, I have diarrhea. And Sir, this pain. is a Wendy's. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And he was just like, and he looked at me, he's just like, I, I, got no, I don't even know how to, and I was, you know, second year resident. Mm -hmm. And he's like, I don't remember. And, you know, he's been a cardiologist for 30 years. And he's, he just looked at me like, I don't even remember like what questions to ask at this point. I was like, okay. This isn't my idea of what it is to be a doctor, you know, where you sort of lose all these other clinical capabilities, mm -hmm. which is, is totally reasonable, right? When you get sub sub specialized, you get into a whole a whole world where you're like, okay, I don't deal with that anymore, you right. know, and that sort of melts away over time. So you wanted to be a little more general, exactly. So I wanted to be more general, and that's that's ultimately threw me off the path of my sub sub specialization. So that was the first sort of kink in the sort of direct shot at right. being a cardiac. Wait, I saw you worked at McKinsey. Was this before or after that? No, that, that was after this. So, okay. I, so basically what happened was after that was like, okay, now I'm like, I want to be more of a generalist. I'm not sure how that's going to work. I'm not sure exactly what I wanted to do. 
And then, uh, so NYU, are you familiar with the NYU School of Medicine, the hospitals that are associated with it? I just it? don't like Tisch. Yeah, so Tisch is one of the three hospitals we work at. The other two are all up First Avenue from 23rd to 33rd. Tisch is on 33rd, then there's Bellevue on 28th, and Manhattan VA on 23rd. Is that what used to be Rusk? Uh, Rusk? No, I think Rusk is like a physical therapy thing. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, that's up on 38th or something like that. Right. But anyway, as a resident, we work between all three of them. And like Tish at the time I was there, I think had the highest profit margin of any hospital in America. I think it was topping out at like 10%. The average hospital has like a profit margin of like negative. One, wow, okay. One to 2%. So like they were, they were a machine. They, I assume they remain a machine. I'm not familiar with their current state. Bellevue is a city hospital, a lot of free care to homeless. Right. Uh, Isn't it like immigrants. the most visited, busiest hospital in the city? It's great. I love Bellevue. That's where I work today. That's like my, uh, yeah. like I like my heart and soul. I'm at Bellevue, and then uh, Manhattan VA is like the NHS. Like everyone's employed by the government. Right. Yeah, yeah. And like I would walk five minutes north or south, and despite having the same clinical opinions between my ears, I would practice completely differently. Because the incentive structures are different, the capabilities are different, and that that kind of is what was made me think put two and two together of like, okay, I don't want to be a subspecialized clinician, and what I do want is have the most impact. So that's not at this level anymore. It's not at the widget making level to some extent. Mm-hmm. Don't mean to say that derogatorily to my clinical colleagues. Right, right. I still make. Well, the they widgets. don't listen anyway. <laughs> yeah. I'm like my dad's on the line. That's it. Yeah. Yeah, so you know that made me think like, okay, I need to get to the system side of things. I really need to get to understand how the sausage is made, how things are getting sort of pulled around from the top, and that's what ultimately led me to do end up at McKinsey two and a half years later after working for a bit. So let's take a quick break, and we come back. I want to find out like what's an MD to do at McKinsey. Mm. Okay, so think about that. We'll be right back, friends. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. So what's an MD to do at McKinsey? (laughs) (laughs) What the hell is that going on there? Yeah, uh, it was quite a culture shock. That was very, very different. And the truth of the matter is, is that... so. The top line answer to some extent is that McKinsey is just looking for minds. They they like when you come in with different experiences because they could train you on the business stuff. You know what I mean? And this sort of what they call the consultancy toolkit of like how to use Excel and build decks and things like that. Right. But like what they call 
now they have all this jargon that I end up getting uh, embedded in my brain. Um, uh, I'll take my jargon button out. Go yeah. ahead. <laughs> so then they have what's called the intrinsics. Just how, what are your capabilities? Like what's your horsepower? What are you able to sort of problems you're able to solve? And that's really what they care about. So when I went there in the beginning, you know, as, after I got my legs under me, I did work on things that was relevant. I was a doctor, but probably for the first six months, they just threw me in random, random stuff. Like, you know, large IT transformation at some private equity portfolio company that was burning whatever it was, million dollars a day. And it was like, okay, I'm a doctor. <laughs> what do I do? Yeah. I couldn't sum a column in Excel. I could, but you learn really quick. They throw you in, at least they threw me in at the deep end. I don't know about everyone's experience at McKinsey. It's a huge firm. So a lot of people have different experiences, but threw me in at the deep end. It was like, figure it out. I had to study at night about like, just take classes on basics of accounting, basics of like Microsoft Office. So like how do you use like Excel? College civics shit though. Yeah, but I didn't know that stuff. I didn't know I didn't know what EBITDA was. I didn't know what the difference between that and just profits were. I didn't know SDA. Addressable wait, total addressable market. The yeah, TAMs. What was TAM? I never heard that term. So, you know, there was a steep learning curve. Um uh, but that part is much the plateau comes much lower than anything like the clinical world, right? There right. Such an insane body of wait, information. Wait. So, did this further reinforce your midlife crisis, or kind of reverse it a bit, or give you a different direction? No, I think. Sorry, it, your quarter life crisis. My quarter, excuse me. Right, we're, 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 we're both going to go to one hundred. <laughs> yeah, you just cut my life expectancy by fifty percent. <laughs> no, I think it's a fair, it's an interesting question. I uh, I think it reinforced it in the sense that I really did come to feel that this is where the levers are pulled and understand, and not like at McKinsey particularly, I mean like at the administrative levels that are making these these larger decisions. And it also made me realize or made me appreciate that there's a lot of value to being a doctor who's also, who has that lens. And that's why I keep doing medicine. Because in my mind, similar to that cardiologist that didn't continue to do general medicine, if I just went into business and didn't continue to do medicine, I'm not re I don't really have that feel anymore. You right. know what I mean? And so that's Well, you need feel, the humanity. Exactly. Hippocrates matters. Exactly. Yeah. And like getting touching grass, as the kids say nowadays. Yeah, you know yeah, what yeah. I mean? Like putting your hands on patients, understanding what it means to deliver care and like what that feels like and looks like, and bringing that back to the decision making that's happening. I think it's really, really valuable. Now, I don't want to, I feel conflicted about saying such a thing because we have a doctor shortage and doctors. We need people to do medicine. Right. So, you know, I'm not like all doctors should do this. That would be a total catastrophe. But for me, I felt that I could I could have a lot of impact and uh, sort of get the both best of both worlds for me personally, because I could continue to practice, which is challenging. It's it's a bit of a workload, but I think it's worth worth it for me. So this is a generational so I'm Gen X, you're like elder millennial. Yeah, I'm dead center millennial. Right. Like <laughs> what's the Gen Z? doctor interest. Are you seeing a waning of people that want to go into medicine that are Gen Z? You know, it's hard for me to say. My understanding from just being peripheral consumer of the trends is that is that competition for med school remains extremely fierce. Okay, um, good. And so there's still a lot of demand. The problem is the number of slots are limited. So mm -hmm. we could fill up many more doctors uh, if we made the decision to. But medicine isn't like law school in the sense that, like, you can't just say, here's more books, a couple of more teachers, and train more lawyers. Like, you need an associated hospital <laughs> and, like, rotations. And ultimately, the most, the biggest bottleneck is residency, right? Training spots, which 
is not up to the free market to decide. So there's a big bottleneck there. Um, um, so the demand definitely outstrips supply. Having said that, you know, and I have a sampling bias here because I have this unusual background relative to the average doctor. When I'm working, I mean, I'll very frequently, maybe every month or every other month, I'll have someone from NYU School of Medicine or one of the residents just reach out to me and be like, hey, I'm super interested in, in like pursuing a similar sort of path where I'm like part clinical, part business, let's talk. And so, you know, I, for me, that feels very frequent. Like it feels like a very common desire to have that sort of mix, but I definitely have a selection bias because people are reaching out to me because I have that background. The one thing that I would say, however, is like my millennial colleagues uh, that I speak with um, who are mostly hospitalists, so that's itself a selection bias, they don't necessarily want to do business, but it's very, very, very common for clinicians to want to not be full-time clinical. Whether they do part-time administrative work, part-time teaching, part-time research, that's a very common thing. Well, I'm sure it's like a like an emotional diversity to balance out the burnout with like real world or tangibles. I mean, you still got to go home at night and like hug your family or if you have like whatever it is, you need to be you at three in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing that I think is also like that I, I didn't really understand until I got into business uh, side of things was when you work in the business side of thing, I'm sure, you know, right. As you like built out this organization is like the decisions you make yesterday can pay you back tomorrow if they were good decisions, right? Like it compounds your your work. Like don't have the Twinkie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and 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 the 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 problems that you solve can go over months, years, even, right? Right. Medicine, you know, once you get out of training, you are like the next patient, the next patient, the next patient. It's very volume focused. Mm -hmm. And you know, you watch Seinfeld, I assume. Yeah, sure. Yeah, you know that episode where Newman, uh, Jerry asked Newman like. Uh, you know, Newman, why why is it always the postman that like go on shooting sprees? Although that was kind of a meme that doesn't exist anymore, but right, it right. used to be a case. And Newman is like, well, because the mail comes in, you take it out. And the mail comes in, you take it out. And it bugs right. out and Kramer's like, eh, Newman. And it's like, oh, it was funny at the time. And then in hindsight, I'm looking at him like, yeah, I think that's probably a big driver of burnout for clinicians. Right. Like, rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat, rinse, yeah, repeat. Yeah, it, when it's a volume, it's, it's a weird volume game. It's like a volume game where you have essentially zero upside. Uh, I mean, the upside is you help a person, right. but it's not like you're going to get paid more advanced in your career or anything like that if you really do a great clinical job. No one has, no one even knows. Frankly. But isn't the volume job now a little more strict and mandated than it ever was before? You could, you don't get to spend the time with a person you'd like to. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not really a mandated thing. It's just it's the incentive structures that exist. Yeah, mm. you don't, you don't. Yeah, I mean, depending on the type of clinician that you are, but the most common clinicians that the average person is seeing is yeah, they don't get to spend a lot of time. With their patients is because the incentive structures don't allow it, and um, and that's tough. I think that that's that's a big burnout. And the truth of the matter is, is each patient has significant downside risk, so that's really stressful, right? You could fuck up, like you could really mess up, and you could hurt somebody, and you do that over and over and over and over again. I I don't know. To me, I, I don't know. When I hear people talking about burnout, and I think it's partially true, is like they talk about the charting and the tech and this stuff, and that is annoying. But I think that the the cadence of the work is really could get really draining. Uh, is there any data, I mean, it's maybe a loaded question, but is there any data, as I ask this naively, that would substantiate that this incentive-based volume is a detriment to wellness and outcomes? You know, not that I'm familiar with. Let's I ask McKinsey. Yeah, they might have something. <laughs> I mean, I think intuitively it just makes tons of sense, right? You don't give people the time and opportunity to think about things. You turn everyone into triage monkeys where it's just like, 
do you fit the box of what I do? Yes, no. If no, go to somebody else. Right. You know, and for the patient, it's just this crazy fragmentation. No one sits down and just thinks about what's happening to you. The other thing that you could look at is just you know top line numbers, right? Like America is doing all this triaging between different specialties, and you're not seeing the top line outcomes very helpful. I I have a lot of conflicting opinions about that, but I think that it doesn't. It's not dispositive or anything, but it's. I definitely think it seems to be driving. It doesn't. It's not driving in the right direction, as I can tell. Well, we're going to get into insurance fuckery because you're at Oscar. By the way, this show not sponsored by Oscar. <laughs> this is just an honest conversation here. Yeah. Full disclosure and on that note. Full disclosure. I don't speak on behalf of Oscar. No, 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 no. We're not. We're not doing that. But insurance fuckery is something everyone sure. can nod their head about. Yeah. And I see this phrase a lot, and I've always been sort of contrapuntal to it. It's not controversial, but I don't believe like healthcare in America is broken. Okay. I believe it is working by design. Mm, I see. And it is the responsibility, like anything else in government you don't like, to fuck back as voters, as citizens, and as activists. But it's harder than ever to know how to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I agree with that. I think that I think that there's a compounding problem, which is I don't think it's very clear what to do. Right. I think um, there are good examples uh, outside the United States that go – that I think go better, uh, not quite single. I'm not like a huge proponent of single payer. Single payer probably net net is better than the crazy sort of Frankenstein of a system that we have today. But probably optimal is something more similar to to like Germany. Israel also has a similar. Australia thing. has a decent system. Yeah, Australia as well, where it's like privately run, highly regulated, but universal in nature, mm-hmm. right? So you maintain these incentive structures. Or you can get the Amex Platinum. Yes, if exactly. You want. And you at can least buy you get supplemental. The card. Yeah. Exactly. So you, so you, everyone wants universal care. So we don't accomplish that. So that's a major failing, right? And then, but then the question is the cost at which you do it, and this is a very, very tough question. That I think so. Definitely, we there's a tremendous amount of waste in the American healthcare system. Oh, really? Go on. I think it's a quarter on the dollar is assumed wasted. Mm -hmm. Probably higher than that. Um, But like, you know, there's other pieces of it that are harder to disentangle. Uh, Like, for example, we just are wealthier. And so you just see a strong correlation between wealthier countries spending more on services, including healthcare, right? I don't defend the system, but I, I, I articulate it this way. Nothing can help 330 million people a day every day. Nothing can help 330. There are 330 million people mm. that need health care every day in this country. Sure. Yes. Like I'm just making for, – for, for argument's sake. No. Name me anything on earth that can serve that many people every single day. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. And that and at the end, that was going to be the, the second point. Is like how do you disentangle what – I don't know, what I maybe callously call the substrate, right? Like the – the people like there's like if you took the American population with an obesity rate of 30, 35 plus percent mm-hmm. and then exposed the Japanese healthcare system to that, which has an obesity rate of like sub three percent or something like that, mm-hmm. how much would that system cost? Well, we don't know, right? Like, so to say that the Japanese spend so much less than we do, it's not an apples to apples comparison, really. So you have to correct for the rate for the rate of disease, which is I haven't seen a study that done it personally. Maybe it exists, but it seems very challenging to do that. So to me, you know, as you said, I actually like that because at the end, what takes care of 330 million people a day is themselves making decisions every day and having a culture of walking more. Well, if they have choices that yeah, they that's can fair. make. I was talking to a friend of mine point. earlier, I mean, as, as of this recording, like earlier today, that if you compare 
certain off-the-shelf products in the supermarket in any other country, it would be banned if the American version was there. Yeah. And only in America can we have a more toxic version of potato chips than – and even something as simple as like I think pathogen-free meat is mandatory in Europe huh. versus there is no pathogen-free mandate of anything poultry or meat or fish in this country. Sounds dangerous. Yes, I'm not that's, sure what that that's means. just not okay. You <laughs> it know, reminds I, me of my favorite little factoid of that was that like there was some mandate or requirement. I forget if it was a state New York State government. I guess it was maybe New York State. I don't remember which which government it was that was like in schools they have to serve a vegetable a day, and so they ended up trying. They ended up getting tomato sauce. Right. Well, like, Dan Quayle said ketchup was a vegetable. <laughs> oh, that remember was, that? Yeah. Something along those lines where it's like, I think technically tomatoes are a fruit. And, uh, they like, are a fruit. Irony, well, they're kind of both. Right? Irony. <laughs> 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 so, yeah, that's. I totally agree that there is, uh, let's say, systemic constraints to people changing their culture. But, you know, top line, I think it's, it's a very challenging problem to say, how can we become the same cost with the same outcomes as societies that are completely different than ours. I think that that's a very under underappreciated question. I don't have an answer. Well, frankly. there's also different incentives on the part of the people that are in charge of whether you are going to get the medicines that you need. And the hubris to assume that if my doctor says this is best for me, what right does this company have to say, no, you have to go on this shittier one and not do as well until you're fucked up enough to go on the one that your doctor thinks you should be on. Yeah, it's it's a really, you know, there. this is a really double-edged sword. That, as a doctor, and so funny because I see the both sides of it now because I'm a practicing clinician where I have to get on the phone with insurance companies and argue with them mm -hmm. to get my patients the things they need. And oftentimes we already gave them the things and now they're just saying they don't want to pay for it. I'm like, right. hey, you're going to bankrupt them. <laughs> like this is totally unacceptable. And then on the flip side, now I'm in the insurance side. And the truth of the matter is, is that there has to be some degree of utilization management or else costs just go through the roof. Right. And so like, because doctors, this is the, so this is like the classic sort of setup for why value-based care medicine is like Supposedly the, the cure all for things. Supposedly. I used to, I used to be a very big VBC evangelist. Again, I do not represent Oscar in any way, <laughs> shape, or form. And I've become a little bit more cynical about it over my time uh, on the business side of things. But there's misaligned incentives in the insurance industry. So to put it super like basic, like when you buy an iPhone or buy any phone, you want the battery life to be very long and it to and it to you know do the things you want. And Apple. And Samsung want that want to give you the longest battery life, right? Yeah. Like you're totally aligned incentives. They want to give you the cheapest, best product you can get. Right. Medicine's not like that at all. It's like, okay, you pay into a, a payer, which is an insurance, typically insurance, but it could be the government, right? Mm -hmm. You pay into and what they want to do after they get your full dollar is is pay out as little of that as possible. And still charge you for going to the doctor as well. Yeah, fair. And then but then what the doctors want to do is get as much of that dollar as possible. Yep. And then what do you want? Well, you don't care about any of that. You no. just want to be healthy. We're, well, it's like it's like we're never the end user. Exactly. And so the so the incentives are in line with with the patient. And so like the thing that I thought before going into the business side of medicine was like I thought the doctors were the good guys along with the patients against like the system. And then I got there and I was like, and it's not the individual doctors. I've never met an individual doctor who makes decisions consciously 
It's not in the best interest of their patients. I'm sure that happens. There's fraud. There's abuse well, and things are, like that. Those are called douchebags. Yeah, those are assholes. But like the like vast majority, I've never met one who wasn't just like literally completely focused on helping their patients. As they should be. But the system, the providers, yeah, they they are not good actors. No, <laughs> no, they are not. They are not driving the system in in the direction that we would want. So they they have a very strong incentive structure to overutilize. All right, let's let's end on a positive note. Yeah, tell me something good that you've witnessed since your time in the insurance world? I think I think one good thing is very similar to the doctor thing, where like people want to help people. So like in care management, uh, you know, we have these concierge teams that get on the phone and help, like the system's crazy complicated, right? Like it's super duper complicated. And like when a, when a member calls and they're, they're having challenges, figuring out what's covered, who, who covers it, how do I get this covered? And like they work through it with them and help them because like, as you said, none of the individuals can change the system. Right. Right. So they're just like in the trenches with them. And I see that all the time. Actually at, at Oscar, we have these all hands things where we always have this like member success story where someone's like talks about how they've helped out these members. And I find those really quite inspiring. I, I really think that that's what, that's really where, why it's important to continue delivering care because get your hands on people, make sure you're remembering that this is for the benefit of human beings who are suffering. Uh, yeah. So. Well, you know, it's the club you never wanted to join, no matter what it is. And progress, what do they say? Uh, The moral arc of progress is not a straight line or something. It bends towards justice. There we go. The the arc of progress is long, but bends towards justice. I think something along those lines. Well, we'll get course corrected by my (laughs) listeners. But anyway, (laughs) Dr. Adam Harris, I'm going to read this again from the paper. Clinical Assistant Professor, (laughs) Department of Medicine at NYU Grossman School of Medicine and Senior Director of Strategy and Operations at Oscar Health. And a Binghamton alumni to boot yeah that's right all right go bearcats thank you my friend all right later friends see you next time out of patience with matthew zachary is an off script health production the executive producers are matthew zachary and andrew mcdowell it's mixed and edited by kyle moore if you like the show ratings and reviews are always welcome Leave us a message anytime at 855-AUDIO-66. That's 855-AUDIO-66 to share your healthcare shitness with us. And we might just play them on the air on a future episode. For more information about this show and Offscript Health, visit offscript.com. That's offscript, no T, dot com. <laughs>